0: Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Let me again welcome you if you're visiting with us. We are in a uh, more than a year-long study of the book of Hebrews together. You'll find our passage tonight on page 1006 in the Black Pew Bible. As you're turning there, i want to tell you a story of Sir Arthur Arthur Conan Doyle, the very famous author of Sherlock Holmes' detective novels. Uh, It's known that he was a practical joker. It's uncertain if he carried through on this exactly as it's told. One time it said, he sends a telegram to 12 famous people in London whom he knew, and it read, Flee at once. All is discovered. And although they were all 12 very upright citizens, they all quickly left the country. Now it may be fictitious as a story, but it illustrates the fact that a guilty conscience is a common thing. And look closely enough in anybody's life who's lived long enough, and there are things they are ashamed of. There were there are things you would be ashamed to know about them. And if you knew my whole life story, you wouldn't come back here next week or ever again. And I, if it was displayed on a video screen to the whole community, I'd have to flee. I don't want you to know everything there is to know about all the crud in my actions, desires, thoughts. Nobody does so it reminds us that uh, we all struggle with guilt. We all struggle with sin. And sometimes in the church, even among Christians, we may be uncertain about our standing with God because of either our past sins or our present struggles with sin. What does God really think about us? Many genuine Christians walk around wondering if Boy, if everybody else knew what I'd done, if word leaked out, uh, it would be a disaster. And how much more must God think I'm a disaster and God be against me and God not truly forgive me? And so uh, we fear sometimes, even we who uh, have been given a savior and Partly because we don't appreciate what we have in our Savior. The full forgiveness, full acceptance of us through Him. And this letter was written to people who struggle with these kinds of things. And it is written to teach Christians not that it's okay to sin, but that it is okay to acknowledge our sin and to need our Savior and to know that in Jesus God has taken away our sin. And in Jesus, God accepts us in his presence. He welcomes us to himself. And that's, uh, that's a wonderful, wonderful truth that we all need to have very deep in our hearts. And uh, tonight in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, the author seeks to drive it home even more closely. And so let me invite you to pay attention to the reading of the scripture tonight, our study of it from Hebrews chapter 10. Tonight we'll be reading verses... 1 through 10. This is the word of God. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. Amen. May God write this word on our hearts. Let's look to Him together in prayer. And we ask, Father, that You would do a great work of grace in our hearts, that You would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in Your Word, to see glorious truths about our Savior, and so receive the assurance and confidence uh, that belongs to the children of God. We ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, the writer here wants us to ask, what is effective for our forgiveness and for our acceptance with God? And he does so by looking at the question, or I want to look at it in the three headings, but in the first paragraph, verses 1 through 4, he shows you the inadequacy of, Of the old covenant substitutionary sacrifice of animals. Then in verses five through seven, he shows you the adequacy of Christ's obedience to the will of God, even unto death, on our behalf. And in verses eight through ten, the benefits for all who believe. And so I want you to think about those three things. In the first place, in verses one through four, the inadequacy of the Old Covenant substitutionary sacrifices of animals. What he's saying here in this paragraph, it is the gospel, not the law, that provides what we need. Notice verse 1 he says, the law is a shadow, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of the realities, it can never By the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year. It can never make perfect those who draw near. What he's saying is you should think of the law and the gospel this way. Think of an artist painting on canvas. Under the old covenant, what Moses gave the people was a shadow. It was a kind of black and white pencil sketch of what was to come. It was, it was like an etch-a-sketch, an outline, a, a bit fuzzy, not all the details, certainly not full color, not three-dimensional in that sense. But when Christ came, he came in living color. The artist has, has placed upon that canvas in bright colors the glory of Jesus in three dimensions. Whereas in the old it was but an etch a sketch in black and white, a shadow. It was there, it pointed you to what was to come. But it wasn't nearly so clear or nearly so good. And so consequently, he says at the end of verse one, it can never, that that law, it can never make perfect those who drew near. It it never really accomplished the job that needs to be done. It could never, the old covenant. Given under Moses, those sacrifices by those human flawed priests could never perfect us or, or bring to maturity God's purposes for us, including the full forgiveness of sins. Those sacrifices, those animals couldn't reconcile us to God, but they did foreshadow the real sacrifice offered by the real priest, Christ our great high priest, Christ, our sacrifice. And then in verse 2, he explains why it is. He proves the point of verse 1. Otherwise, and he wants you to ask this. He asks you a question to have you think this through. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? You see his argument. You can, he says, um, You can know that the Old Testament ceremonial sacrifices did not accomplish forgiveness because they were repeated. If they had been effective, they would have stopped. If they had really dealt with sin, really brought forgiveness, you wouldn't keep offering them. But the fact that you had to keep offering them and year after year they had to be offered on the Day of Atonement and day by day in the temple... It means they weren't ultimately effective. They didn't stop because they didn't do the job. Instead, what did they do? What were they? They were a continual reminder of sins. Notice verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. That Old Testament ritual was a constant reminder your sins hadn't been finally dealt with or dealt with adequately was like as we've said before opening your medicine cabinet seeing there the the prescription from your doctor and remembering that you are sick and you haven't been healed as long as you keep taking that medicine and keep filling that prescription as long as that medicine is there and that prescription keeps getting filled you haven't been cured of what you need to be cured from Instead, there was a, a consciousness of sin. It didn't really deal with the consciousness of sin. You see that language there. And what he's there, what he's there talking about is not the awareness of sin. Certainly, they were aware of sin. But certainly, the most mature Christian is aware of their sin. In fact, it's a sign of maturity in Christ for a Christian to know all the more how far we shall fall from. How far we fall short of the glory of God. How much we have left undone. How we haven't been all that we ought to be. He's not talking about an awareness or even a conviction that you're sinful when he speaks of the consciousness of sin here. But they didn't have like we do the, the finality of the cross of Christ. Where sin is fully and finally Paid for and dealt with so that we can be free and forgiven. And so they didn't have the confidence that we do. Not the confidence through the law. Not the confidence through the sacrifice of animals. They knew they needed forgiveness. The sacrifices pointed them to their need for it. It pointed them to the promise of it. The availability of it. In the gospel, in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but the sacrifices themselves didn't do that job. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible, he says. Nobody, he says, had their sins forgiven based on the old covenant sacrifices. No animal's death could take away your sin. Now, does that mean that nobody in the Old Testament was ever forgiven for the sin? Of course not. That's not what it means. Yes, believers were forgiven. But they didn't receive that forgiveness based on the law or through the law. They received it through the gospel. Not through animal sacrifices, but through the sacrifice of Christ. His death, as we learn in chapter 9, verse 15, redeemed them. From the transgressions they committed under the Old Covenant. The death of Christ on the cross works forward to us and it works backward to them. But no animal was adequate for that task. That's his first point. And of course his point is, therefore don't leave Jesus and go back to that. There's nothing there for you outside of Christ. And so then at verses 5 through 7, he points you to the adequacy of Christ's obedience to the will of God, even unto death. The adequacy of him for your salvation. He came to do something and offer something better than the blood of bulls and goats. Notice his language. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, quoted here Psalm 40 sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will. O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Do you see what he's doing there? He's saying concerning the sacrifices. He says, God did not desire them. End of verse five. God took no pleasure in them. End of verse six. Now you have to ask, how can he say that? God commanded them. The entire book of Leviticus is all about how you offer sacrifices for atonement. The burnt offering, chapter 1. Sin offerings and guilt offerings and all. He mentions the various kinds of offerings. How can he say God didn't want them. God wasn't pleased with them. Well... I think the answer is found in in the the Old Testament for us and in the words of Jesus. These were but substitutes for what God has always really wanted, which was what? It was us. And yet he didn't get us. I mean, listen to uh, the story of Samuel and King Saul. Uh, You remember in 1 Samuel chapter 15... Uh, When Samuel confronted the wicked king Saul, Saul had disobeyed an explicit command of God that he should not take captive any livestock from his enemies. Samuel challenged him on that. You're not obeying God. Saul, what did he do? He offered to sacrifice a few of the contraband animals to to God. In 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 a way, kind of, you know, let's pay him off and let's offer the sacrifices for disobedience. According to the letter of the Levitical system and Samuel gives him a stinging rebuke in chapter 15, verse 22 of 1 Samuel. He says this to Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. You see what he's saying? What God desires from us is obedience. Not ultimately sacrifices to cover our disobedience. Or consider the language of the prophets. And there are many places we could turn, but but there's a famous one in Micah chapter 6. You'll hear the language you're familiar with probably at the end of it. Chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before my God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil. I I think that's a reference to the fat of the ram burning off. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you. But to do justice. And to love kindness. And to walk humbly with your God. Or consider Hosea 6, verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Do you hear the language? What God says is I want you to have steadfast love. I want you to know me. I want you to walk with me. I want you to do justice. I want you to love mercy. Love loving kindness and steadfast love. And to walk humbly with me. I want you. All of you. All for me. This is the same idea we get with Jesus. When Jesus teaches on the law in Mark chapter 12, he's being questioned by a lawyer about what's most important. And Jesus, you may remember, said that the most important is to love God and love your neighbor, in shorthand. And the scribe follows it up. And there's a discussion. The scribe says to him, Mark 12, verse 32, he says to him, you are right, teacher. And to love him with all the heart, And with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbors as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Do you see why? you understand what God wants us to be saying and doing? Is is saying, I will go where you want me to go. I will be what you want me to be. I will love what you want me to love. I will do what you want me to do. I will say what you want me to say. I will give what you want me to give. I will do that always and forever perfectly. I am wholly yours from the heart. He's always wanted you. And that is not too much to ask. It is his right as your creator. He made you. He owns you. To refuse him shows the height of ingratitude. And it is not too much to ask. He is your king. And he expects you to follow him. And when we refuse him, it is rebellion. And it is not too much to ask for Christians. Jesus is the husband of the bride. He loved you and gave himself for you. He laid out his life to refuse him. Like a bride refusing her husband is to scorn his love. It's not too much for him to ask that we be all in for him. But we haven't been that. Not a single One of us has been all of that. And if you'll see that, Jesus says to the man, you haven't loved God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loved your neighbor as yourself, then Jesus says you're not far from the kingdom. Why is that? Because if you see that, you'll quit trying to waltz yourself into the presence of God, announce your credentials, and expect to be received. You don't meet the qualifications. You keep holding back. We all do that. And until we see that we are spiritually bankrupt and have nothing to offer God. So that we are, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, poor in spirit. It is not until then that we know that the kingdom of heaven is ours. That Jesus has everything to give to us when we had nothing to offer him but ourselves and our sin. Our sinful selves. And if you see that about yourself, then you'll know that you need this savior. And you won't try to offer yourself as a bargain for your own soul. What will God accept? What does God, what has he always wanted? He's always wanted you. What will he accept instead of you? He will accept a qualified substitute. You, the animal won't do verses one to four, but Jesus will do just fine before God. Uh, Notice the language here, uh, picking up verses five through seven. He quotes Psalm forty, David, the psalmist, speaking prophetically here of Christ. uh, David understanding that what was desired was perfect moral obedience, not ultimately perfect. Sacrifices for moral disobedience, right? Again, the, the amoral animal dragged unwillingly to slaughter is no adequate substitute in death for those who deserve death and who in their right mind thinks that the moral justice of God could be satisfied the blood of a bull or a goat you know, when the wages of sin is death for God's image bearers. But what we need is another human, one who is perfect in every way, who volunteers, chooses to die in the place of the other. That is heroic. That is acceptable. And that is our salvation. And David acknowledges that here. And Jesus picks up these words of the psalmist and he says, here I am, O Lord. I have come to do your will, O God. The writer of Hebrews here correctly sees that Christ's purpose, first and foremost, was to do his father's will, to obey his father, to be the obedient son that Israel never was to God. And so Jesus came to render perfect obedience to the will of the father. He Love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. He loved his neighbor as himself. And in doing so, he satisfied the righteous requirements of the law. And he came to render to God a perfect offering for sin. To shed his blood for our atonement. To be an acceptable substitution in death. For the wages of sin is death. And Jesus said, here I am, O God, I have come to do your will. And he did it. And do you remember what the father said about his son? This is my beloved son. And with him, I am well pleased. The father is satisfied with his son. And so for all who are in Christ, who are united to Jesus, who trust in him, the father is satisfied with you. You are welcome. He's qualified you because he's qualified. Now, finally, then, what are the applications? Well, one is this. To see that what God requires, God provides. God requires sinners be judged for their sin. And he provides his own son to be judged on our behalf. God requires perfect righteousness of life. And God provides his own son to live a life of perfect righteousness on our behalf. The gospel is grace upon grace. It is a gift that we receive. It is not an offering that we give. Ours is inadequate, but his is perfect and God has provided for us. The second thing I want you to see is that you need no other than this Savior. Notice the language of verses 8 and 9 when he explains what he's just said. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are the offerings according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. The second replaces the first. He's doing the will of God to replace sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, all those offerings. And then, what that, what does that mean? Well, uh, it means something theologically and it means something very personally. Theologically, this passage runs counter to some of the claims of some who identify as dispensationalists. Certainly not all dispensationalists. Folks with a particular theological framework, if you know what that is, then you'll know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, love talking to you about it afterwards. But there are some who have claimed and still claim that there is a coming future day when the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And offerings of animals will be again slaughtered in sacrifice. And that theology is mistaken. The once for all offering of the better has already come. But there's something much more personal here for all of us. Because we are all tempted in light of our shame and our guilt and our sin. We're all tempted to bargain with God. We're all tempted to try to make up for it. We're all tempted to atone for what we have done wrong I mean it's almost commonplace in popular language now it's, it's almost commonplace in political pronouncements for somebody to have done something terrible and then to say I made a mistake it was wrong and now I just need to atone for my sins I'm going to work really hard for the people to atone for my sins now you and I say that too maybe not out loud with our words but we do it I have offended my spouse. I have offended my children. I'm going to do better. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to get it right next time. And that's going to make up for the wrong I have done. And nothing can make up for the wrong that you have done. But the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. Just flee to Christ. Depend on Him. He is all our righteousness. And then pursue obedience. Absolutely. Pursue love. Pursue holiness. But not to gain God's favor, but because in Christ you already have his favor. And finally, by way of application, notice verse 10. He says, and by that will, meaning by the will of God that Jesus did, the perfect obedience he offered unto death, we have been sanctified through the offering and body of Jesus Christ once and for all. We have been sanctified. Now it's common for us to think in terms of being sanctified and not inappropriately. We are, God, we are a work in progress as people. Christ has done something marvelous for us and he is doing something in us. And he is changing us slowly and progressively. We are more and more being made after the likeness of Jesus as we behold the glory of the Lord. One day we will be like Christ in moral perfection. We are not yet there. We are being progressively changed, progressively sanctified. That's one way to speak about it. But notice here he speaks about that which has been done, that which is definitively accomplished. We have been sanctified. It's completed. We have been, in other words, set apart by God and for God. It's done. We don't have to work hard to belong to God. Through the work of Christ, God has made us His. And that will help you tremendously if you're a person who is insecure morally, spiritually, personally uh, to know that God has already established your standing in His family. A few things produce insecurity in me like lining up to be picked for a team. Some of you have heard this story but years ago when I did college ministry I was with a bunch of RUF, that's a college ministry, campus ministers at a training event. So we're all Twenty to thirty to forty somethings, and with a little extra time on our hands, out on the field to play a little bit of, of flag football together. Now, I was 39 at the time. Some of these men were a good decade younger than me, and uh, so as they lined us up to pick teams, you know, I'm I'm kind of twiddling my thumbs, watching all these young bucks get picked you know and I'm wondering like some scared elementary kid you know waiting for waiting just waiting for them to realize my better qualifications which aren't just so obvious on the outside and uh, it's true I wasn't picked first nor was I picked last pity pity the man and uh, we did win so you know I'm kind of over it till next time but But uh, it raises the question that we're all forced to ask in life. Do I have the qualifications necessary to make me desirable in this situation? Certain university students uh, interview for sorority bids and they don't receive them. Certain guys interview for a second date. The first date is an interview for the second and they don't get that second date. Some of you have experienced interviewing for jobs, and no job was forthcoming. What do I have to do to be qualified around here, to have status and standing here? Some of you know our dear friend who went on to glory and was buried this week at Erickson in a sweet moment at his a funeral service, it was mentioned how uh, when you became friends with the Erickson family, when you married into that family, Ed went out of his way to make sure that you knew that you had status, that you had standing, that you belonged to that family. God here has gone out of his way to make sure that you know that you have standing, you have status, you have been sanctified he has made you for himself redeemed you to himself so that you would belong to him do you see in this passage how loved you are the son offered himself for you do you see how free from sin you are how forgiven he died for you and do you see how welcome you are He set you apart for himself. You belong to him. If you belong to Christ, you belong to God. You are not your own. Live then and die for him who lived and died for you. Let's pray. Father, make us willing because by your grand redemption, you have made us yours. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.